Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and include some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And our cases this week, a rising star's fall after allegations of grooming, and sexual abuse, an actress and her husband have been convicted of jointly manipulating a girl for years, starting when the girl was just 13 years old. The victim found the strength to come forward and the court made sure that her voice was heard in the process. But first, a former Food Network contestant is convicted of beating her foster daughter to death. When the little girl was brought into the family, it seemed like this would be a new beginning for everyone. But instead, a violent outburst from her foster mother ended it all. We are recording this on Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. Our guest today is Tracy Tambora, a criminal justice professor at the University of New Haven. She is a criminologist and a nationally recognized expert on the criminal justice system when it pertains to domestic violence, sexual assault, and abuse. Tracy, welcome to the program. We're so thrilled to have you. Thank you, Anna. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, we're very excited. We understand your daughter's a fan of the program. I did. I, you know, you got me some cool points as a geeky professor mom because she watches your podcast, listens to your podcast and was pretty excited that I was going to be on here today. So, Anna, thank you so much for helping this geeky professor get some cool points with her daughter. Um, well, I think geeky professors have changed a lot because you do not appear to be geeky in the least. And we are thrilled to have you. We love your perspective, especially your expertise in this area when we're talking about the two cases here. So, Tracy, what we have going on here is really about these cases are about abusive children, but really by celebrities. This is what makes this a very unique program. These are people who live in the public eye, but who have been convicted of doing unspeakable things to children behind closed doors. So the first one that we're going to discuss is about a former Food Network contestant who's been convicted of beating her foster daughter to death. And um, I'm just gonna give a few details and then Tracy will jump right in. So 30-year-old Ariel Robinson was the winner of the Food Network's Worst Cooks in America contest show. And she has been found guilty of homicide by child abuse and the death of three-year-old Victoria Tory Smith, whom she was fostering. The mm-hmm. homicide case was heard in a court in Greenville County, South Carolina. Um, you know, Tracy, we were talking about this case before we even started recording. And sadly, these things happen all the time children in foster care who are removed from their family because of circumstances which Mm -hmm. the government decides is unsafe end up being put in a home that is even either more unsafe or equally unsafe yes and that's what we're finding in this situation yeah you know anna um first of all this isn't a, a nuanced case in that we've seen it before right Um, But I think you make a a really good point about the fact that we're removing a child from one home, placing them in a home that we at least have the expectations of a greater level of safety, hence the removal. One thing I think that, um, you know, often gets highlighted is in a case where there is a foster care death is not just the particulars of the relationship between the parent 
and the child, but the system. Because as a criminologist, I'm very aware that human beings do terrible things all the time. That does, that's not what surprises me at the end of the day. What surprises me at the end of the day is when the system fails, right? The system is comprised of a lot of people, a lot of professionals who have a wide array of, air, of expertise in a variety of areas. And so you're at least hopeful that even when you have an individual who is frail, mentally, emotionally, whatever, that someone from that system will be able to recognize some signs and intervene. And I think that's what probably outrages the general public the most, that, you know, sure, a, a, a woman on one of her worst days committed a heinous act, not justifiable at all, but the fact that nobody was able to intervene on behalf of this child, there were no other warning signs, there was nothing available. That, that for me, is one of the points um, that stands out with this particular case. Absolutely. And I think a lot of times these cases do not get the focus and the spotlight. And therefore, we may hear of a death, but the justice system keeps everything very private and keeps mm -hmm. cameras and reporters out. One of the fights I've always had here in the courts in Los Angeles has been trying to open up the door for us to figure out what is going on with the foster care system, mm -hmm. because the problem is it's so secretive because it's supposed yes. to be protective of the children that when really bad things happen, we're not allowed to see it and reveal the process. Okay. And so this case made a lot of headlines. I think that that's important because only yeah, through that and through the prosecution of people who commit crimes against children can we see change in this broken system. Yeah, Anna, you point out another really important fact here, the fact that the system is, is closed. I mean, on the one hand, as you aptly pointed out, there's confidentiality. We want to protect the um, children and also the parents that are involved in the foster care system. But when we protect individuals, we also protect the system. So we don't have a chance. And by we, I mean, researchers and journalists don't have a chance to do a full um, inspection of that system to either shed a light on a problem, um, you know, provide some opportunity for evaluation and growth. And so that's important. One of the factors that I would assume is at play here, uh, not assume because there is research to support this, individuals from impoverished backgrounds are less likely to garner media attention. So we do, right, we, we pay a lot of attention in the media when these are traditional celebrities. This particular individual, Ariel Robinson, is not a traditional celebrity, right? Um, and so when someone like a Paris Hilton or a Kim Kardashian, right, they engage in some behavior that is newsworthy, it goes uh, whatever it's deemed newsworthy, it, it's all over. This particular case involved someone who had some celebrity status, but who also, interestingly enough, has this very, uh, you, you know, has a background of not uh, perhaps being in the spotlight. And also, I don't know the socioeconomic status of the, the young girl, Victoria. I will assume that she uh, it comes from a lower socioeconomic status because about 95% of children in foster care do. Um, well, well, her mother, the biological mother of Victoria, did say that she, you know, she had Victoria as a newborn, and we're going to get into that. And she had two other children. Um, her partner had left her, so financially she was struggling, struggling okay. to find a place to live. There were a lot of issues going on. Right. Besides, there was also, you know, allegations that she may have the mother, the biological mother, may have used drugs while she was pregnant, which of course <laughs> would have had serious implications on Victoria at her birth. All, all those factors yeah. going on. There were many things going on. So let's get back to the details of what happened to Victoria and when, and we'll start piecing that all together. Um, so the three-year-old died on January 14th of 2021 mm -hmm. at the family's home in Simpsonville. Now the cause of death, blunt force trauma and internal bleeding. One doctor testified that the trauma was the worst that that person had ever seen, which you know, we see a lot of horrible things. So when you hear someone say, this is the worst I've ever seen, you got to really wonder how it had to have been the worst, really the worst. Now, a few days later on January 19th, the foster parents, Ariel and Jerry Robinson were arrested. Now, Tracy, here's what's interesting to me. They were arrested one day before 
the the adoption was supposed to go through. The adoption was scheduled for the 20th of January. Uh, it's mind-boggling what almost happened. And, of course, this ending was horrible. I, I, what does that tell you about supervision of this family and this child? You know, on a, you know, not only do I do research on uh, abuse, but I was a former, before I went back for my doctorate, I was a child protective service worker. So I actually saw firsthand how, um, you know, custody hearings occur, how transference of guardianship occurs. I've seen that firsthand. Um, a lot of things fall through the cracks, Anna. Um, you know, investigations are looking for some big red flags. Um, a social worker, I'm, I, you know, I have East Coast experience. I'm not sure, uh, North, Northeast Coast experience. So I'm not sure if this applied uh, in this particular case uh, in, um, in South Carolina. But we only need to do one visit per month while we're establishing custody rights, custody hearing, transference of guardianship, et cetera. We're also collecting documents, of course, from doctors, teachers, daycare providers. But one visit a month does not give you a lot of insight into the daily workings of a home, right? You know, I think what you and the general public are assuming is that there's these spot checks that occur all the time. There's yeah. a very rigorous examination of the family. Yeah. Not so. Right. We like to think. We like to think <laughs> that if a system that, you know, we pay our taxes into, that if a system is placed in charge of a, a child who is vulnerable, that that system will do, um, it's like um, in, in place of a mother, right? In place of a father, right. you, you are given a very special legal right to protect yeah. this child because for you to come into a home and take a child, it takes a lot to take a child out of a home, you mm -hmm. know, from, from the parents. So, I mean, we could go on and on about the system and what's wrong with it. And, I, and we'll have more opportunities, but I'm, I'm going to get back to um, the background of this family and the foster mom and, you know, why mm -hmm. she got all this attention. Yeah, I believe she got a lot of attention because she was a winner of a reality show contest. Let's be real. Sure. If, if no one knew this mother, you know, would the court case have been televised to the degree that it was? Maybe not. Maybe not. Okay, so back to Ariel. She had this prior appearance on the Food Network. Um, she was considered a, a fixture in the local community, you know, kind of um, person that people knew. She was a middle school teacher. She performed comedy under the pseudonym Air Funny, the Clean Queen of Comedy, and she hosted, God help me, a parenting podcast with her husband. Okay. Oh, boy. Right. Uh, Ariel and Jerry Austin Robinson, because a lot of times Jerry was called by his middle name, Austin. Um, they had two biological sons prior to taking in Victoria and her two biological brothers. They were all taken in, the three of them, in 2020. So this was a blended family. Ariel Robinson was a participant on season 20 of the Food Network's Worst Cooks in America. Now, that's where the show tries to take contestants with no prior cooking background or skills and make them into more masterful chefs in, um, you know, by working with celebrity chefs. I'm sorry, I've never seen the show, so I don't know what it is, but I thought we should have some background on why this woman was on this program. So she won $25,000 in prize money. The couple, of course, I think when you have people who live on reality shows, they also have a lot of social media, Tracy. So there were a lot of posts of Victoria, which mm -hmm. this is going to get very interesting here. So they were active on social media. Um, the, the, the foster parents were um, always making a very big point of a blended family. You know, it was mm -hmm. a very mm -hmm. colorful, diverse family um, mm -hmm. between the foster children and the children that... Um, the Robinsons had. And it is Victoria's biological family, the little girl's biological family that says mm -hmm. the red flags were in the social media the entire time, but no one was looking. No one was looking. So I, I want to talk about that because um, I, I think that's a very important point. I went through the photographs last night mm -hmm. and I thought to myself, wow. As I looked closer, I was like, yeah, it's right there. 
it's right there. One image, you know, you've got uh, Victoria's right wrist has, you know, what appears to be some bruising. She's got in one photo, it looks like she has the beginnings or the healing of a black eye. Mm -hmm. And then um, it looks like on her neck, especially like at the back of her head, back of her neck, that looked like there was some red bruising as if you know, mm. someone had been maybe holding or strangling. Um, that was not the cause of death. But, but Tracy, I mean, what do we do with this now? So social media posts are showing something is amiss. Yes. Do, do kids always have all sorts of bumps and bruises? Yes. But these are in some strange places. Sure. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a forensic scientist, uh, but yeah, bruising, uh, I did receive training when I was top protective service. Bruising in certain areas are odd, right? We don't care shins, elbows, right? This is what we're expecting, kids running around playing. The bruises you're describing, I suppose, could be considered odd. However, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I can think of times where I've photographed my own children uh, after having a black eye from a, a you know a sport injury sure. or a bee sting, and you are like saying, "Look at the kid! Look what happened to my kid today!" Right? And so, but but that aside, so when you evaluate if child abuse is present, you know you're not just looking for an occasional bruise in in in, in an odd spot, like you said, bruising on the neck is bizarre. Uh, bruising in the abdomen area is bizarre. Uh, anything, you know, it appears to be a wrist hold might be bizarre. But you're also looking for interactions between child and parent. And again, I wasn't involved in this case in the terms I hadn't, I haven't read the court documents. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the social worker uh, that was evaluating the case noticed anything about the rapport between the parents and the child. When I would go into a home and see children who did not want to be near that parent, mm -hmm. who um, were very uh, trepidatious in their presence, who were very standoffish, um, who, especially young children. I'm not talking about adolescents, right? Because yeah, be, they hate everyone. <laughs> yeah. um, but when I had a child on my caseload under nine or 10, and they were exhibiting certain emotional characteristics, this is, is what I would note. So I don't know that I could evaluate from a few from social media posts anything because the, I also saw posts where they're hugging, the girl is smiling, right? And so I know we love to play social media sleuth after mm -hmm. the fact, whether it's a breakup or it's obviously something as horrendous as a child murder. But we're looking for a pattern of behavior that's also indicated in their emotional rapport. It's interesting that the Robinson family said that they had security cameras in their home, uh, which they said they had to set up because Victoria's seven-year-old biological brother had anger issues and would hit her. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's been established yet. Um, it is interesting. And yes, sometimes, you know, when you take in um, children uh, from other families, there are going to be challenges and issues. Um, so what I also find interesting is that, um, we're being told that during the pandemic, Jerry worked while Ariel stayed home with the children and that she used the cameras because that's a lot of kids in the house as extra set of eyes and ears. And a lot of it was streamed, I guess. So the husband, dad could also watch. So it's interesting that there were so many cameras mm -hmm. around, yet um, I don't believe that any incident was specifically recovered and used in trial sure. that I can tell. Now, the thing that is interesting is other cameras sometimes pick up things when you least expect it. And here's something, days, you know, well, actually almost a day, the day before that the little girl um, was killed. January 13th, 2021, the Robinsons all went to church. There is surveillance video from the church, according to police, that showed that the mother, the foster mother, Ariel, is walking out and little Victoria is just in her underwear, just in her underwear uh -huh. as they're walking out. Okay, now stuff happens all the time with kids. They either have accidents or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, a ton of things happens with children all the time. I mean, usually you try to have a spare set of clothes, but I mean, maybe mm -hmm. they were going to the car to get the spare clothes. I don't know. Apparently, 
Uh, what ended up happening or the story was told to police that um, Ariel said they were running 15 minutes late, that the girl had thrown up on herself um, and that one of the other parishioners saw Ariel in the bathroom washing out the dress that she, again, had thrown up on herself. And that's, I guess, a reasonable explanation as to why the child is walking out of church in her underwear and her mm-hmm. panties. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is actually going to come back again. This idea of um, food and what's going on, which yes. really I want, uh, this is, I wish we knew even more about this because this is going to be a theme here. According to the husband, Jerry, he said the following morning, following morning after this church incident, yeah. he heard Ariel, his wife, giving little Victoria, who is all of three years old, what he described as, quote, a whooping with a belt that could be heard outside of the house. How loud does something have to be to be heard outside a house? I don't even, I can't, I just, I want to cry. I can't, I can't even, I can't even imagine Mm -hmm. what that Mm -hmm. is. So um, the beating, according to the husband, the explanation was, that Victoria was not eating her pancakes fast enough. Mm-hmm. And that supposedly threw the foster mother off the deep end. Mm-hmm. We know it is challenging to be a parent without question. But I'm wondering, it's like this is two days in a row where you're having some issues. What if this child had true, real medical problems, either with food, with eating, keeping it down, or, or, or the little girl is scared out of her mind and so stressed out that of course she's throwing up and no, no matter what she does, she knows she's never going to do it well enough and she's going to get a beating because at three, you know that. Yeah. You know, Anna, I could paint for you real quickly, two very different plausible pictures, right? You could have had a little girl, maybe she contracts a virus or a bug, she throws up, it's in the middle of something very stressful, mom has something going on, mom uh, snaps. There was no history of abuse. I mean, maybe she doesn't win mother of the year, but there's no history of uh, physical abuse. And Ma, it, you know, it's, I've, I've been involved in cases like this, this perfect storm yeah. um, and somebody snaps. We could have that as a scenario. We could also have as a scenario that you have an individual who either has, uh, you know, maybe an, uh, a lot of times it's correlated between child abuse and post history of trauma for the adult. So Ariel, the mother, could have had, you know, could have had some issue that's uh, manifesting in her parenting, and she is a poor parent, and there is habitual abuse, there is habitual neglect, and nobody's weighing in, nobody's watching, right? Either of those two scenarios is plausible, and anything in the middle. Well, Jerry claims that when he went inside after hearing the beating, that he claims he found Ariel standing over Victoria with the belt. He says that he told Ariel that she had, quote, gone too far this time. Mm-hmm. That indicates uh, to me this time, yeah. this time, this time you'd gone too far, right? You'd gone too far. OK, so I don't yeah. think it's the first time, according to the uh, foster father's testimony, mm-hmm. he supposedly purchased liquid Tylenol for the baby's injuries. And then they gave her, gave her a little bath in Epsom salt, you know, to help ease the the bruising, I guess, and the pain. But of course, if you have such a severe beating, Tylenol Mm -hmm. and a warm bath are not going to help you. You need a doctor. So eventually he called 911. By the time the ambulance arrived, Victoria was already in cardiac arrest. She died at the hospital. Mm -hmm. She didn't stand a chance. So according to the arrest warrants, the Robinsons inflicted a series of blunt force injuries to Victoria, who died of internal bleeding. Now, what I find interesting, and we've been discussing this in South Carolina, um, they have a law, which I don't know if all states do, but I like this, that says that if, um, if there is a death of a child, it must be investigated. Yes. Because, you know, children just don't die. You know, yeah. it's not like a 90-year-old person with multiple right. health issues. Right. 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 You, you expect that, you know, life will end soon, but not for a child. So, um, and five days later after the investigation and after her death, the adoptive, well, excuse me, soon to be adopt, adoptive, um, but foster parents were in handcuffs. Yeah. So Jerry Austin Robinson 
that would be the foster dad. Mm-hmm. He pleaded guilty in April to aiding and abetting homicide by child abuse. Jerry claims that he never physically hit Victoria and that Ariel would beat the child with different things, including a belt. So mm-hmm. according to his testimony, yeah. this wasn't the first time and it was the mother. Now, I'm also going to say, look, he might be lying to save his 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 himself. That may yes. be possible. I'm not going to put that past anybody in this situation. Um, I do believe that the truth will come and probably did come from all of the children in the house because they're the ones because isn't that what happens tracy don't they not only are those other children interviewed by police but by social workers and that's how they figure out what was going on and where and when and who was exposed to what yes yes so when a child i don't know if every state like you say has in south carolina has a automatic investigation but most states if, if the child is in foster care it triggers a specialized team that investigates internally and cooperates with the police. So, um, yeah, and, and that would include interviewing because, of course, at this point, social uh, Department of Social Service in South Carolina has to go in and remove the other children. All um, the children. And here all we go children. all over right. again, right? Has to go, right? The Robinsons' biological children, taken because both their parents have been arrested. And right. then you have Victoria's two biological brothers, the foster children, now they're taken. So now oh, everybody's taken. taken and like, what happens to them? Like right. what a traumatic experience for all of them. Very traumatic. And each of the children, I'm especially uh, Victoria's biological siblings, you know, they're probably also reeling with things like guilt. So now these kids are in a situation in which they will carry with them this kind of trauma from not intervening. Um, But they're also in a situation where we know this, children in abusive households feel torn. They don't necessarily want to leave the abusive household. And so even though it's in their best interest, and and of course there isn't a choice because the parents could be in custody, they, they must be placed elsewhere. It is very devastating for children to leave even abusive homes. Yeah, that's always been the saddest thing ever, right? A child can be just so abused and still clings on to that parent because yeah. at the end of the day, it's their parent. It's such a complicated relationship, so complicated. Now, um, so as we said that the husband has pleaded guilty, so he, but he has not been sentenced yet. The wife decided that she was going to have Mm -hmm. a trial. She insisted she's not guilty and she wanted a trial. She said that it was her husband, who she calls Austin, is the one who killed the girl because Ariel said the husband had anger issues. So we're going to play a clip of Ariel taking the stand in her defense on the murder for the murder trial. She says that she was out grocery shopping when Austin must have hit the child. Mm-hmm. And that when she noticed something was wrong with Victoria, she called up for her husband. Let's play the clip. I hollered for Austin to come upstairs. And he's, he came in the room when she was on her, um, our stool. And he looked at me and he was like, is she breathing? And I said, I think I hear her trying to breathe. I hear something in her lungs, though. It sounds like it sounds like she's got like fluid in her lungs. And so um, they said, should I call 911? I said, yeah, call 911 because I don't I don't know. I don't know what to do. Well, I got a lot of problems with what she just said. Really? How does she know that the girl has fluid in her lungs unless she knows something really like something else was done to this child? Mm hmm. I just didn't find her convincing at all on the stand. I'm sorry, I didn't. Yeah, and and, and I mean, she's she's not convincing. Um, and at the same time, you know, there's all sorts of red flags in my mind as studying these cases on the aggregate. Uh, oftentimes it is the male in the home who is taking the lead on the physical violence, right? And so on the one hand, her personal demeanor does not appear to be credible. But then if I were going to, you know, do an assessment without interviewing both parties, I would, there would be some credibility I would give to her testimony about the engagement of the father, because that's what we find most likely. And that's the hard thing about these cases is just because on the average, it is the, um, it is the uh, male who is 
perpetrating the majority of violence in the House doesn't mean that it always is. And so I'm sure that was something that prosecutors also took into account. Like, how much do we go down this? How You know, when we take when we offer the plea and accept the plea mm-hmm. from uh, Mr. Robinson in this case, how, you know, do is this sending up any red flags for them? Because this kind of flies in the face about what we know uh, from data about the effects of child mortality and, and and who is responsible for child mortality. Well, I don't think he's getting away with it. You know, no, he's no, no, certainly no. he's he's pleaded guilty to basically aiding and abetting and which is very different from homicide. And my guess is prosecutors knew it was going to be very hard to prove um, that he had done other things. Um, yeah. because that's, that's always the challenge is, can yeah. you get a conviction? So you got a plea deal. He's not walking. Let's hope we don't know what the sentence yeah. is. And, um, uh, my guess is, I don't know is that he's maybe being cooperative and is providing evidence that could be corroborated. Let's not forget the children. The children right? were there. The children, the children. were there. Mm-hmm. So before we get into sentencing, which is unbelievable what the judge had to say. We're going to play a clip of that. I want to talk a little bit about Victoria Smith's biological family here, because, you know, as we said, there were reasons that the child was in the foster care system with her brothers. Um, Her biological family has been very critical of the foster care system. Clearly, there's been a massive failure here. There is no question about it. And there's plenty of blame for everybody here. Absolutely. I totally agree with them. Um, The biological mother, Cassie Fares, um, you know, she has admitted and has done interviews where, you know, life was not easy. Uh Um, The family has told media organizations that the biological mom Um, had a health screening and she tested positive for marijuana when she was pregnant with Victoria and that when Victoria was born, uh, the family has told uh, news organizations that the Victoria was born with some traces of um, drugs in her system. And um, Cassie, that's the mom. So Cassie's aunt claims that the mother was trying her best to deal with nausea and morning sickness. And that the aunt has said, you know, that the biological mother struggled. She had a newborn and um, she was a single mom and she had two other children. And apparently there was an incident where I guess the mom fell asleep and then the two other children ran to a neighbor's house. And I guess that's when police got called. Mm You know, we don't know all of the details there, but that was the beginning in many ways, in addition to the other medical issues. So um, the way Cassie describes it is that she was presented with the option of signing away her rights as a parent. Um, And there was there was, you know, it, it got a little complicated for me as to what her options were and um, whether she would fight it, meaning could she fight for her children or should she sign away these rights? I have to think that's not an easy process and not Mm -hmm. one which is very forgiving of the biological parent who's in crisis trying to figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that part was a little surprising to me how quickly um, these children went up for adoption. Usually there's a case management plan. Since probably about early 2000, 2007 is a, is a noted year in the Child Protective Service where we try, where they really put a lot of emphasis on um, uh, reunification with parents as opposed to, you know, trying to get the child adopted. So in the last, you know, 15 years, we, there's been so much emphasis on family reunification. So this, these were young children. Why they were up for adoption so quickly is strange to me. I mean, again, there's always cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but why they were up for adoption rather quickly is strange, especially the only drugs like you mentioned that I saw was was marijuana. I didn't see these ongoing histories, these these huge red flags. Um, and then the the other issue is, um, you know, I, I don't know if they tried to engage family members. So, uh, again, around 2007, there was big, you know, uh, federal uh uh, act that looked at how we how the foster care system was uh, operating, and one thing that came out was more emphasis on family reunification. Get get the parents in in programs and treatment, etc. 
And then the second, if that fails, can we get them with a caretaker relative? Can we get them with uh, someone in the family? So I'm not, it's not clear to me how those things were exhausted so quickly. Yeah, there's um, the mother, Cassie, the biological mother, did an interview with the local TV station. We're going to play a, a little bit about it where basically the mom is, is describing that she thought she was doing the right thing. And I just rushed into a decision thinking that it was what was best for my children and that that's what I should do when I really feel like now I should have done anything but. I'm sure now Cassie, you know, without question, is feeling that she did not do the right thing. You know, she was probably thinking that maybe someone can give my daughter and my, you know, two boys a better life. And that is not what happened. So I can't even imagine the level of guilt that, you know, she's feeling and the heartache that she's feeling at losing her baby. Yeah. It's just so tragic. So tragic. Um, You know, and the aunt had said, um, the Victoria's biological aunt said, you know, these people, meaning the the welfare system, these, quote, these people are the experts. We trusted them to put the kids in a safe and loving environment. And that is without dispute. We all had the same expectation, even more so if you're a blood relative without without question. And they've been very critical of the screening process because clearly it failed again in this system. So now I want to get back to Ariel here. So Ariel Robinson was sentenced to life in prison, life in prison uh, on Thursday, May 12th. Her husband, Jerry Austin Robinson, who's 35, has also been implicated in the homicide. Um, He's pleading guilty to aiding and abetting homicide by child abuse. He's not been sentenced. I really believe that the judge in this case said it best. Here's a clip from the courtroom feed that was provided by WYFF-TV. And this is Judge Letitia Verdon. Medical testimony in this case um, was incredibly heartbreaking. Um, And for folks who deal in the emergency room and who serve us in that way and folks who deal with children in the most critical of situations for them to say that this was substantially worse than anything they had seen, uh, I think that has to put something into perspective for you. Um, I can say that in my 13, 14 years of being a judge, I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen anything like this. Um, Not even approaching it. Um, And what compounds it is that I understand what your attorney is saying. Perhaps you snapped at that moment, but then why, then why let this child suffer and not get her medical attention that she desperately needed as she lay dying in her own bedroom? Based upon all that, the sentence of the court cannot be anything but life in prison. Thank you. I think the judge really said it all there. Not Mm -hmm. only was this one of the most horrific examples of child abuse, but, but she even gave some potential credit and said, look, even if you did snap, what you should have done is called 911 immediately to get that child help. And maybe Victoria could have been saved. Yes. Would you likely have been charged with child abuse? Yes. Without question. Would you be spending the rest of your life, you know, in prison for murder? No, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. especially if she lived. Right. Yeah. So mitigating, aggravating circumstances add to a case. And and what the judge is assessing is, was this person at all remorseful? Right. Because the purpose of prison, at least in theory, is some sort of uh, rehabilitative process. And and so a good judge is assessing where is the starting point with this Mm -hmm. defendant. Right. And if the defendant showed at, at time of action or subsequently some remorse, then their starting point is a little bit different. And so the judge can consider that at sentencing. But as you aptly point out, as the judge states, the individual didn't take any opportunity to rectify what could have been a very unfortunate, unplanned, uncalculated moment. But instead of you know, addressing that, uh, that moment, it's almost like when we say someone is doubling down, right? Like mm-hmm. you not only committed this crime, but you didn't take any action to prioritize the life of this individual 
to, you know, either because you were remorseful or because you felt a sense of obligation to the child. And I blame both parents here because Mm -hmm. their actions guaranteed that Victoria would die without question. Delaying calling 911, they're both guilty, both of them. It'll be interesting to see how the judge rules um, in terms of the father, because even if it's determined that he did not play a role in the active murder, in in the engagement, the physical abuse, um, his lack of action led to her death. And, And also that's, we have a higher standard, of course, for people who are in parental roles. You know, you are supposed to act. And so, you're supposed to be the adult in the room. Right, right, right. All so, right. yeah. We'll watch it. Our next case is about an actress who's been sentenced to eight years in prison for the sexual abuse of a teen girl while the girl was between the ages of 13 and 15. This is a case out of England, and the accused is an actress. Zara Fithian is best known for her role in the Marvel movie Doctor Strange, which came out in 2016, in which she starred opposite Benedict Cumberbatch. Now, Zara Fithian is 37 years old. She's a British actress, but she's also a martial arts stunt woman. Um, Her husband, who's 20 years older, uh, is a martial arts instructor, 59-year-old Victor Mark. Zara was found guilty of sexually abusing the teen and sentenced to eight years in prison by UK's Nottingham Crown Court on Monday, May 16th, 2022. The court found her guilty of 14 charges of sexual activity with a child, which took place between 2005 and 2008, starting when the child was just 13. We're going to get into the husband's um, charges here as well. But in essence, what was going on was that the two of them, who are celebrities, back to celebrities again. If you're in the world of martial arts, he's a very big deal. She's an actress and she's mm-hmm. a stunt woman. So two local celebrities. Um, how exactly they met this 13-year-old is unclear to me. Yeah. But apparently they gave her alcohol. They were at a mm-hmm. social setting. They gave this girl alcohol. And then they dared her to play a game. Uh-huh. And then uh, it became sexual. And then um, allegedly Zara, they both deny all of this, um, but they have been convicted. Zara said um, that the girl testified that Zara performed a sexual act on her husband and then encouraged the girl to also perform a sexual act on the husband, mimicking what she just did. And then the three of them. Anyway, it gets very, very detailed, um, but it was all horrific. Um, And the judge made it very clear that when this first happened, this girl hadn't even gone through puberty yet. And, you know, um, this power couple is making it sound like all of this is false. They're denying everything, even though they've been convicted. And they also are really putting it back on the victims. Let's blame the victims who are all adults now, right? Mm-hmm. Because sure, a 13 year old has control over these two. Yeah, I, I mean, but that speaks to the essence of individuals who would engage in these acts in the first place. Uh, their inability to be culpable, their inability to be accountable. So, uh, you know, again, I never interviewed either one of them, but their behavior follows a consistent pattern in what we know of individuals who groom and engage in sex acts with children. They're, they have no ability to be culpable for their actions. And um, they, in strange ways, um, need to imagine that the individual is more mature than they are. So there is an, it's, it's a very strange thing. I, I worked once with a, someone who actually counseled uh, pedophiles and said, on the one hand, they're attracted to the, 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 the physique of the child. But in the, on the other hand, they need to believe that that individual is their equal. So there's this very odd, di- you know, th- this odd dichotomy going on that doesn't, that's not logically lining up. You're attracted to a pubescent or prepubescent body, but you think they have autonomy. You think that they have agency. You think they're intellectually equal. These things aren't, aren't, you know, making sense. You know, if these two, if this couple, if they wanted to have threesomes, foursomes, whatever the hell, you know, they got off on, they could have found plenty of consenting young adults to have sex with. 
Right. There was no reason that they needed to do this unless they wanted the ultimate power and control that you have with a child. Sure. That's what we're dealing with here. You know, sure. that's what we're dealing with here. So the husband, Victor, was sentenced to 14 years in prison because he was seen as the driving force behind the abuse. It's very interesting. This is all according to the judge. In addition to the 14 charges that Zara faced, he is also found guilty of four additional counts of indecent assault with a second victim. These assaults took place between 2002 and 2003 with a 15-year-old victim. Mm -hmm. The couple, uh, as we said, they were local celebrities, kind of like in our first case. The mother mm -hmm. was a local celebrity. I mean, these two are much more of yeah. celebrities than the first one, but it all has to do with community and where these crimes occur. You know, the, the amazing thing is that the victims in this case, obviously they looked at these two as successful, especially mm -hmm. Zara, mm -hmm. more so Zara than anyone else, only because you know, maybe they, they would feel like, oh, she wouldn't harm me, right? Mm -hmm. She's an actress and she's successful and she has money and she must just really care about me. I mean, mm -hmm. it's all so twisted, so, mm -hmm. so twisted. Now, here's the background, which I think is equally twisted. So um, Zara began training in martial arts when she was just seven years old. She became so proficient that she was showcased, showcased in various competitions um, and tournaments around the UK and the US. While she was at a U.S. tournament, someone spots her and says, oh, wow, you know what? How'd you like to be in an action film? Right? It's like your dream come true. Someone thinks that you're special and is going to yeah. make you into a star, which is what happened. She had a very successful career as a stunt person and an actress in over 20 films, most notably Doctor Strange. Zara was 14 and already had a black belt when she became Victor's student, mm -hmm. I believe that this is the genesis of many evil things to come. This is just my personal opinion, because this starts a unique relationship between the mm -hmm. two of them. Victor's married at the time, according to court records and published reports, and he starts having an affair with Zara. Okay? Mm -hmm. So there we go. Yeah, and we've, we seen this, we've seen this in other cases, right? I mean, obviously Epstein and Maxwell, We've seen it with the um, the hot yoga, Burkham yoga. Oh, I can't yeah. yeah, we've seen this where individuals in these positions of power surround themselves with very young people and then it becomes a process. And I believe the judge said at one point that he wasn't going to uh, be as uh, harsh in terms of sentencing with Zara because of the nature of her relationship uh, year, you know, for years prior with um uh, Victor Mark. So yeah. I, I, that, that whole pattern, I, I think became right. obvious think, in court. Yeah. I think that's it that the judge pointed out that in the trial, it became evident that his grooming of her at an early age, that he then had a level of control over her and manipulated her because she was very young. I mean, she was, we believe of age about 20 when the uh, abuse began when she began participating in the abuse with her husband. So she clearly mm -hmm. was old enough mm -hmm. to say, no, this is not okay, but she right. didn't. Right. Um, so that is why she is also guilty here. Mm -hmm. However, the judge did think that she herself was originally groomed as a victim. And right. so she may not see it, but the court sees it. And therefore the punishment will be different mm -hmm. for those two. Zara and Victor were married in 2015. Mm -hmm. um, so again, she would have been about 20 when the uh, abuse with the minors began. Right. Um, the the victim, that 13 year old victim, the the game that I said was, you know, they want to play dare with her, uh, and it may have started off all fun and innocent, but it didn't end that way. The victim told police, quote, I remember trying to copy Zara's reaction at the time because I looked to her and tried to be like her in every way, meaning she tried to mimic the sexual act that Zara was performing on her husband. Uh, the victim said she knew it was wrong, but she was unaware of how to leave the situation. Mm -hmm. I think that's 
understandable and reasonable sure. of a young person, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, the child saying, I'm mimicking the behavior of this adult, and I'm because I don't have any concept of, you know, sexual uh, and sexual act makes makes perfect sense. You know, in, in the United States or a country like England, very westernized countries, we don't do a very good job. Again, you know, I'm no culpability removed from either Victor Mark or Zara uh, Fithian, but, you know, we don't do a very good job of letting kids know what sex is, what's healthy sex, what to do if you're in a situation. So, you know, the young woman's testimony that I did not, I knew it was wrong, but I didn't know what I was supposed to say or do. This is something that I have seen in my data collection with research. I've also seen it when I was a former counselor working with sexual abuse victims. You and don't the give victim, them any tools. They're, they no. have no tools. They're defenseless. Yeah. And also there were threats made against her because um, mm -hmm. he's, according to the victim's mm -hmm. testimony, he told her, no one's going to believe you. No mm -hmm. one's going to believe common. you. So, That's so you common. better not tell anybody. Mm -hmm. And that happens a lot, these threats, or that I'm going to harm you or harm your family is another sure. one. The victim said that she, again, knew that it was wrong, uh, that she went over to their home about once or twice a month. This was over a three-year period. Mm -hmm. um, and then Victor reportedly assaulted the victim around 20 times on different occasions. Mm -hmm. The girl also said that the abuse was filmed, telling the court uh, that they wanted to recreate pornography that the couple watched. According to the victim, she was threatened with violence by Victor. Remember, right. he's a master martial sure. arts instructor who allegedly said that he would get this, smash her kneecaps if she tried to report the abuse that she suffered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and obviously, probably could smash them. Of course, right? And and these are scare tactics that uh, perpetrators of habitual or repeated sexual assault will use: threats of violence. And in his case, as you point out, it's very credible. Um, not only was there a you know size differential and age differential, but he was also a martial artist. The judge said that young people, especially martial arts students, looked up to this couple. The judge said, quote, most people have held you in high esteem. That is why you were able to groom the victims in mm -hmm. this case and get away with it for so long because of their position, because yes. of their celebrity. They were able to get away with this for so long. Zara has denied the allegations the entire time. And then the husband told the police that sex with that particular victim started after she turned 18. Oh, really? Isn't that convenient? Yeah, I right, bet it right. did. Yeah. Right, right, well, nobody right. was buying any of this. Um, both of them maintain their innocence. They say that the witnesses have been lying the whole time. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about on our social media. And here's our producer, Will Updike, with what y'all are talking about. Hey, Will. Hey, Anna. Hey, Tracy. How's it going? Hey, Will, well, did you change your lighting? Uh, <laughs> I got a very bright light. I don't have diffusion on this window, so it's either all on or all off. Okay, I noticed. I'm just saying, I noticed. Uh, so anyways, today we have a favor from a would-be burglar. Now, police in Port Arthur, Texas are looking for a man that they said they saw on surveillance video mowing a homeowner's lawn. So they ended up sharing this video on their Facebook page. Uh, the suspect was later identified as Marcus Hubbard. So the video, you can see the man, he pulls the mower out. He even goes as far as to grab a gas can to fill up the mower. And then he's making some passes over the lawn. Now, police allege that Hubbard did mow the lawn, both the front and the back. But some people kind of thought there was a discrepancy there because they couldn't really see grass clippings. Uh, so some people suspect that he might have just been going over it, not mowing. Uh, but I'm going to assume that he was actually getting the job done. Uh, so officials ended up arriving on the scene in the neighborhood and Marcus fled, but not without trying to take the mower with him. He tried mm -hmm. to flee mower, you know, behind him, dragging it. Uh, but he had to leave it ultimately to flee from the authorities. They are still looking for information about Hubbard uh, was the latest update that I had. Uh, but people had a lot to say about this one. Um, Chris F said he must have thought he earned it fair and square for doing yard work. I don't know if one mow of a lawn is enough to, you know, get you a whole lawnmower, but 
you know, you're, you're trying to do a quid pro quo thing. Uh, mm -hmm. The Southern Twist said, I wouldn't even want to arrest him. Give him community service. Me too. Yeah. I want to arrest this guy. Yeah, I think, no. Yeah, I think he's a little confused, but I don't, you know. Wait a, wait a minute, William, I, I'm lost here. When were the police called? While he's mowing the lawn or when he walks away with the lawnmower? Police arrive, like the way it was described, mm -hmm. is the police arrive on the scene and he is fleeing with the lawnmower. Now, this portion wasn't on the security footage. So, like, we don't okay. know exactly went down there. But I'm assuming, you know, the neighborhood, it looks like a decent neighborhood. I think probably there's someone mowing the lawn. It's, it's very late at night. You can see in the pictures and the videos. I think maybe it probably erased some suspicions. Okay, late night um, yeah. mower. Okay, whatever. Is that a crime? Hello? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just think taking it is where you get into trouble. Jeez. Otherwise, you're just doing a favor. Right. Uh, Christine K said, maybe he'll come back and trim the hedges next time. Fingers oh, crossed. I like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Bobby G wanted the service performed as well. He said, I keep the mower out back and the shed is unlocked. <laughs> Please make sure you hit the flower beds also. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, that it's a, it would be a great service. Um, and Marcus H uh, said of the Colonel's future prospects, you will never catch me. I will mow all the yards. Uh, which, <laughs> I, I've never heard of a cereal mower, uh, but I would certainly welcome it. Oh my God, too funny, too funny. Yeah, a little community service and the community service should be that he mows the lawns for the city. I just think that that's right. He looks fairly diligent in the work. Like yeah, the passes right? are nice and smooth. He's keeping some pretty crisp lines. I, I you know, I, I could see him doing a great job on a, you know, a kid's ball field or something. And, you, you know, know. how do we know that he wasn't just taking the lawnmower to mow the neighbor's lawns too right. and was going to bring it back? That's right. That's a great point. Yeah, he could have, this could have just been the start of like a whole uh, community betterment project. He just needed I think, the mower. Yeah. He just needed the mower. Yeah. Yeah, needed his tools. Thank yeah. you, Will. See you next Absolutely. week. Yeah, we'll do. <laughs> Thank Bye. you. Well, that's our program for today, Tracy. It's been such a pleasure having you. I love your insight because we have so many cases all the time where a child does die in yeah. um, a foster care situation. We have never had the insight that you've right. been able to provide about the how, the why, what happens on the inside. And that's been really helpful. I hope that you'll come back. I would love to come back. Thank you. Keep getting me more points at home. So please, Anna, invite me back. <laughs> so hilarious. I love, I love hearing that your daughter is um, a fan of the program. So Tracy, where can people find more about you? Do you have any social media? I, I, so that's why my daughter calls me the geeky professor, because I don't do that. But if you go to my website, uh, my faculty page at the University of New Haven, you can take a look at other interviews that I have done, televised, as well as um, print. And then, of course, like any good professor, you can also look at a uh, book I've published and articles that I have published. Not as exciting. Um, but yeah, <laughs> University of New Haven faculty pages, Tracy Tambora. That's where all of my information is housed. That's fantastic. We've had such a pleasure having you. Uh, the insight's been tremendous. We do hope that you come back. Um, tell your daughter that. <laughs> okay. And Anna, I just want to thank you for giving attention. Like I, I was saying it earlier, the foster care system doesn't get much attention primarily because it's a confidential system and I get it, but also most people involved in the foster care system um, as foster parents and foster children, not necessarily this case, but most of them are impoverished. And we just haven't been a country that's really interested in the you know, necessarily the lives of impoverished people. They don't capture a lot of media attention. And we actually can prove that with data. We can quantify that. So it's not just an opinion. So I really right. appreciate you for bringing light to this particular case and the foster care system. Thank you. Well, we, we do. We really do try to do a variety of crimes, not only the crimes committed by, let's say, celebrities or the wealthy, but also those in need of support who maybe didn't get right. support because you have to look at the whole picture of the crime. And, um, you know, we really try to approach them from all these different angles, because I don't think otherwise we're going to understand the crime. And I don't think we're going to understand the victim and, and, and how that person may have been set up 
with mm-hmm. no way out. Sure. And you may not also understand the perpetrator sure. and what was going on there. Um, so we try and tell as full a picture as we can uh, from a variety of angles. And that's why it's been such a treat thank to you. have you. Thank you so us. much. So thank you so much. Thank uh, you, Anna. You can find me at Anna G News on all social media platforms. Um, you can find this podcast along with a bunch of other podcasts that we do wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget the series, My Favorite Case, which is a favorite of mine. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, True Crime Daily. Sign up to receive our newsletter, truecrimedaily.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. This is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime.